We are, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. Now, we've been talking about specifically the idea of the bread pointing to Jesus. And as I went through last week, we're, all of this, ha- it, it, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? I want you to, I know it's like we, we, we lay that foundation again, but we're laying this brick upon brick for a reason. That all of these things here, as we talked about last week, we're specifically talking about Jesus. He says that I am the bread of life. I am the bread of the heaven that came down. He keeps making those analogies, going back to that. So as we have been going through this, I just want to reiterate the fact that this is very, very important. Because when we look at the part when he says that this is my body and this is my blood, those are two separate occurrences. Those are two separate things. We keep reading, and I want to read this again, Psalm 103. Let's start there. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. He forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The reason we read this every single week is that if we read something long enough, perhaps we'll start to believe it. I think it was Hitler said that if I control the textbook, I'll control uh, the youth. Because he knows that if you continue to bombard people with information, they will begin to accept it as truth. And here we have King David underneath a covenant that according to Scripture was not as good as the one that we are in, and that's important, is telling us that the benefits of being in covenant relationship with God was that he forgives our iniquities and he heals our diseases. We're focused on that healing. Because forgiveness is a given. We've accepted that. It doesn't matter what we do in society today. It's like, oh, God forgives me. It's okay. It doesn't make any difference. It doesn't matter that I don't believe in God, that I don't put my faith in Christ. You can come to Jesus any way you want. We may, you may call Him God and we may call Him Allah, but He's all the same. Those aren't true statements. But it doesn't make any difference because God just loves me and He forgives me. And there is truth to that. God does love us and God does forgive us, but it's not like there is nothing attached to it. So we can accept that, but we can't accept healing. That's the thing. If we read this enough, maybe we'll start to believe it. And if we start to believe the word for what it says, then maybe we'll start to see it impact our lives a little bit more. And so when we talk about this part, that the bread of heaven, we're going back to Isaiah 53. Verse 4 and 5, it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and He's carried our sorrows. Yet we have streamed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Now there were some that will make the argument that that healed is talking about spiritual healing. Are we spiritually healed? No. We were spiritually dead. Now we're spiritually alive. There's a difference. Because he did not take something that was sick and make it better. He took something that was dead and gave it life. That is key. Also in this, we talked about how griefs and sorrows talked about our sickness that he carried and our, uh, our pains that he bore. All of these things is talking about physically. You see, he came to complete the whole man. Remember what's happening. In Genesis, you have a perfect creation and paradise is lost. In Revelation, you have paradise that will ultimately be regained. And in between there is how God is making it happen. There was no sickness and disease prior to the fall. When Adam and Eve sinned, it brought what? It brought death. What is sickness? Slow death. Your body is designed to fight off the common cold. However, if your immune system is not functioning, that can kill you. So imagine sitting at a football game and someone sneezes next to you. It would be an epidemic. 
But God designed our bodies to fight that off. And so here we have the completion of the entirety of man. And we have to get that. So that he is born our sickness and carried our pains is crucial to the understanding. We saw it in Matthew 8 and we see Peter reiterate it. That we're not talking about spiritual healing here. We are talking about physical healing. Imagine, think about this, if you walked around with the idea that healing and not being sick is my right from God as a believer. That He actually paid for that. Like we can accept the fact that He paid for our sins and we can be forgiven and we can get to heaven. And guess what the consequences are if we're wrong? They're pretty dire. But if you're sick and it's not a right to be healed or it's not part of God's plan or part of the atonement, hey, that's all right. I'll eventually get better. I remember somebody one time, you know, listen, I love testimonies. You guys are going to hear testimonies here in the coming weeks. I promise you this. But I love hearing what God did. All right. But somebody had caught a cold and they they called me up. This was years ago. And they said, hey, can I give a testimony about God's goodness? And I'm always up for that. Yeah, God's good. Let's hear about it. Let's hear what's going on. I said, well, what was going on? He's like, oh, you know what? I caught a cold. It was a pretty bad cold. I was like, oh, okay. He said, but God healed me. I'm like, well, that's awesome. Tell me what happened. It's like, well, I stayed in bed for seven days. And I did nothing but rest and drink lots of fluids. And at the end of that seven days, it was completely gone. And I'm sitting there like, okay. I mean, y'all know what they tell you to do, right? Rest, get lots of fluid. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest, right? Nothing supernatural, so to speak, going on there. Yes, God is good. Yes, God heals. But Let's not make something up. You know, when I hear stories of somebody who has cancer and then they get prayed for and then they go and get checked out and the cancer is gone, I love those stories. Stories of people getting up out of wheelchairs. Stories of people who are blind and now see or were deaf and now hear or couldn't speak and now can. I hear stories about that kind of stuff happening all the time. All around the world is happening to this day. So it's either making it up or it's true. It's one of the, one of the two. So, what do we do here? We've got God that has paved a way for us to not only be spiritually alive, but physically well. That's His plan. Did God create a world for us to be sick and painful and all of that? No. That's not how He created it. He's bringing it back into fruition. Then we looked at Luke chapter 22, verse 19. He took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, when we looked at this, we've got the bread and we've got the blood. The bread is the body, the blood is the wine. What do we do with this? We know that the blood had to be shed. That it was out the shedding of blood, there is no redemption of sins. We know that during the Passover, the initial Passover, that it wasn't the killing of the lamb, it was the application of the blood on the doorpost that made the angel of death pass over them. We know that. So it didn't matter if they got everything else right. If they ignored that fact, didn't make any difference. They're still subject to it. So we know what the blood does. We know that this cup that he's talking about was the cup of redemption, the third cup in the Passover meal. It was the cup after supper. He says that this is the new covenant. What is the new covenant? Jeremiah 31. This covenant that I make. Not like the one where I led them by the hand out of Egypt. It's different. It's unique. It's better. It's based on better promises. 
So we know that part. But it's the bread over and over and over again. Jesus keeps going back and talking about the bread and His body. That the bread, it said, was Him. It was the manna that came down. It was called the bread from heaven. We know from the passages we went through last week that it was white and it was like a coriander seed. We know from other writings that I've read that they said there were like little stripes on it or something. Interesting. That it tasted like honey. It's called angel's food. And in order to do something with it, they had to grind it and beat it. And that the second they went into the promised land, it all stopped. And then in Matthew 4 last week we read, that in verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, what are we talking about? We are going back to Exodus 16 and manna. That is what it was talking about. Jesus is using this verse. Did the Israelites get that correct? No, because we see other places where they, there's contempt for this worthless manna. They're tired of it. But yet, it was what kept them alive. It was provided by God to keep them spiritually alive or physically alive. Physically alive. It was the bread from heaven provided by God. Nobody else had ever seen that. There was a 40-year window that this took place in the entirety of human history. And so, here we have that. And Jesus in being tempted by hunger, just like they were. Except he got it right. He could have made those stones into bread. But he says, we don't live like that. We live by the word of God. Verse 5, then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. What's he talking about? Deuteronomy 6, 16. You should not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Masa. Where was Masa? That was where he hit the rock and the water flowed. And we saw that in John chapter 7 where Jesus said that anybody who thirsts, come to me. I will give you living water. Talking about how during the Feast of Tabernacles on the last and great day of the feast, the high priest would come in. He would take a pitcher of living water. He would pour it over the altar and he would say, this is the living water. Jesus pipes up and says, I give you living water. So the nourishment that was provided during the Exodus time was bread and water, both pointing to Jesus. Ultimately, the water being the Holy Spirit. But if you don't partake of the bread, you can't have the water. Do you think it's a coincidence through Scripture that the bread came first and then the water? Because you can't have the Spirit within you unless you're first eating the flesh of Jesus. He said in John's, John, was it John 7? That he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. John 6, that's where it's at. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Right? Sounds weird. But he's saying we have to partake just like they did. They had to eat the bread. It kept them alive. They had to drink the water. It was living water. We see this time and time again. So what do we know? When we're recapping everything, what do we know? We know this. That without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption of sin. The blood of the Lamb was what redeemed the people of Israel. It was that blood that was applied on that doorpost that exempted them from death. If they didn't apply it, it didn't matter. Then we know that God provided for them in the wilderness while they were wandering. Were they supposed to be in the wilderness very long? No. They were supposed to leave Egypt, head over to the promised land. Why? It was theirs. 
God promised it to him. Promised it to Abraham. He said, go in there and take it. You know the story? Sent out 12 spies. Came back with a bad report. As a result, they didn't get to enter the promised land. That generation didn't. Joshua will take them in. So we know that the bread of heaven was provided for them. It was the bread of life. It was come down from heaven. It was given to them, and it kept them alive. And we know that the living water came from the stone after it was struck. We know later that Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, and that in that rock, water would flow once again, but he struck it a second time. We know that all of these things come together, and we also know this, that it sustained them in the wilderness, and the second that they went into the promised land, it was no longer provided. Why do you think that is? Because during that time, it wasn't necessary. They were already redeemed, but they're going to a place that flows with milk and honey, a land that was already set up. And so, as we begin to make these correlations, what I want you to see is that all the things in the Old Testament were ultimately pointing to Christ. And it's crucial for us to understand the covenant that we are in. We have to look at the one that they were under. What they went through. You'll see this here in a minute. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers... So who are the fathers? This is Paul talking to the church in Corinth. All our fathers, the old people that came before us, the fathers of, of, of the nation of Israel, they were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now what does that mean? When we think baptized, what are we talking about? Dipping into water. I will come back to this. I will explain this. But in the meantime, what do we know? Is that according to this, this is a picture of things to come. The baptism into Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. Sea being water. Moses, a type of Christ. What's the cloud? It's a type of the Holy Spirit. All right? All ate the same spiritual food, the manna, the bread from heaven. All drank the same spiritual drink. What? The living water that came from the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So this rock apparently followed them around the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, but if a rock starts following me around as I'm walking through town, I'm probably calling for some help. Like, something's not right. Okay? That rock was Christ. Christ was with them. Who provided the water? The living water. It was Christ. That rock had to be struck first in order to give them that. So, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, watch this, verse 6. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And I want to stop there for a minute. You see, each one of these things, as an example at that time to the people of Corinth and to you and I, when he says, now these were our examples, that means that we should go back and look at these. Now, we're going to focus this first one on the being destroyed by the serpents. What on earth is going on there? Why were these serpents were there? Why are they destroying people? Most people don't ever think to go back and look at this. In order to do this, we're going to go to Numbers chapter 21. 
Now, some of you have heard about this, or I've talked about this before, but I want you to see this specifically. As I said, every bit of this is pointing to Christ. Verse 4, Numbers chapter 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Okay? Is that something we should be saying about the provision of God? Absolutely not. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Now stop there. Remember, what were, according to the covenant that they were under, keep my commandments, you'll do well. You don't, you'll be cursed, right? They had a a contract, so to speak, with God, with contingencies in place. The people of Israel agreed to it. Then you get to this part. The bread from heaven is provided for them. And what did he say? I've sent this to test you. Because they were to gather one omer per person, which is about half a pound, per day, with the exception of going into the Sabbath, of which they gathered for two days. If they tried to take too much, the next day it stunk and it was filled with worms. Except on Shabbat. During Shabbat, it would last because they did no work. And what did God say? I did this to test you. Now, based off of what we just read here in Numbers 21, did they pass the test? No. Not only were they not faithful in it, because we know that people took too much, but here they don't want anything to do with it. This stuff is worthless. Okay? Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So what is Moses doing? He is interceding on behalf of the people. He is God's representative to the nation. The nation comes to him. He goes to God. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to the people. All right? So he is interceding for them as a part of this covenant. Moses prays for the people. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, he put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now that should sound bizarre to you, because what on, why is God doing this? Of all the things to do, so again, let's recap this story. The people are complaining specifically about the manna. So God sends judgment, these serpents, fiery serpents, I know I've said this before, but don't picture snakes that are on fire. All right, I've seen illustrations of that. that Whatever there was, the bite that hit them, it would burn and it would kill them. So if that happened as a part of that judgment, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make an image of this serpent, and I want you to go, and I want you to put it on a pole, and I want you to put it up on a hill. And anybody who's bitten, if they'll just go look at that, they'll live and not die. That's weird. So Moses made one out of bronze. There is no explanation. Read past this in Numbers 21. It never once in the entirety of Scripture mentions it again, except in two places. At the time of King Hezekiah, the serpent on the pole is still there. And you'll find this hard to believe, but the Israelites began to worship it. So Hezekiah destroys it. 
But we are not given any explanation. We are not given any reason for it. Why a serpent? Why bronze? Why a pole? Why a hill? Why didn't God just supernaturally, miraculously do something for these people? Why did He have to do this? We never hear an explanation until John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was one of the higher-up Pharisees. They believed in, in the truth of Scripture. They believed that the Messiah would come, but He would come in the way that they wanted Him to. That they would be the people of power when the Messiah came. They were in charge of the Sanhedrin. So Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, Listen, I know you're from God because nobody can do what you do unless He is. But how do I become saved, essentially? And Jesus says, well, you have to be born again. And he says, well, how can I do that? How can I enter into my mother's womb? Again, I'm old. And Jesus said, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? And so starting in verse 10, here's what he says. Jesus answered, said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, this is the only time that this is mentioned outside of Hezekiah's time. Only time in Scripture. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You see, Jesus is making a point here. In verse 17, did Jesus come to bring judgment when He came the first time? No, that's yet to come. But Jesus getting on to Nicodemus, like how do you not understand this? You know the Scriptures. You teach the Scriptures, and you don't get this. And then he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For what reason? The reason is that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Is he talking about physically eternal life? No. You see, we've got to understand that the reality of the world that we live in is not what we touch and see. It's what we don't touch and see. Remember in Romans 1, how it talks about that the people of the world are held accountable, not by the things that are seen, but the things that aren't seen, because God's invisible attributes are clearly shown to them, that they know He's God, and yet they choose to reject Him. Here, Jesus has to be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. We call that born again. We call that salvation. Does that mean that we do certain things? No. It has everything to do with us believing in Jesus. That's it. And that believe doesn't mean I believe that He exists. It means that I have put my faith and trust in Him and His work and not my own. So, for the first time, we're getting an explanation. The entirety of what happened with Moses and that serpent was a picture of the things to come with Christ. Why the serpent? Why bronze? Well, as you study these things out, you begin to realize that there are things called typologies. That serpent is always representative of sin, of the tempter. That bronze is a, a, a type of judgment. So you've got sin being judged on a hill. What did Jesus do? He took on the sin of the world. And the judgment of God was poured out upon Him on a hill. It's the exact same thing. 
Now, why does that matter? It matters because this was a part of the work that was going on here. We're going fast-forwarding through the time of Moses and the Israelites being in the wilderness, but all of this, again, is pointing to Christ. We have to understand that. We have to see that the manna was important, that the water was important, that the wandering was important. All of this was provided for them, taken care of them. Jesus got it right or they got it wrong. He references back to the time that they were in, but yet he did it right. And so just like that, when he talks about prior to that, that this serpent, that he again is embodying this, that this is him. So we see that sin is being judged just like he was. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've read this, these things became our examples, but let's look at verse 10. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by destroyer. Now, What's he talking about here? This is going back to Numbers chapter 14, verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, or jo- Joshua the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of days which you have spied out the land. Forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, I have the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. This is what happened. This is what is talking about back in 1 Corinthians 10.10. And what what is going on here? They sent the spies into the promised land. Check it out. See what's going on. Twelve of them went. Two of them came back and said, listen, God said we can do this. God made this promise. We can go in and take this. And ten of them came back like, listen, there are giants there. And there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of bad. And if we go in there, we're going to be destroyed. And all the people get into this uproar like, has he brought us out here to die in this wilderness? To send us into this land where we can't possibly win this battle? I I mean, you're going to kill us. And finally God says, all right, that's enough. You're stuck here. You will not enter the promised land. Only the two that came back with the good report. What was it about the good report? They simply took God at his word. God said we will go into this promised land. We will take it. So therefore, we will take it. I don't care that there are giants. I don't care that there are obstacles. God made a promise to us. So he's talking about that in verse 10. How about verse 11? Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, why did this happen to them? As examples. All of them were written for what reason? Our admonition. So that we can know. So that we can learn. So that we can grasp and get an understanding of how God moves, how He fulfills His promises, and how He's a keeper of His Word. You guys see that? You see, when David said in Psalm 103, he wasn't just talking abstractly, hoping that that is the God that he worshipped. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the God who forgives and this is the God who heals. 
that he satisfies, he crowns, he does all of those things. Joshua and Caleb knew that he was a God who led them through the Red Sea. He was the God that has brought them through the wilderness, that he's provided everything, and that he made a promise to his people and that he would keep it. They got to enter in. It was there for the taking, but they chose not to. When you read the book of Hebrews, what do we see? The book of Hebrews constantly goes back to what's called Kadesh Barnea, the moment we're talking about. That the people didn't get the rest and the promise of God because they refused to accept it as truth. Now, are we walking in the fullness of the provision that God has made? The answer is no, because we have chosen to reject God's Word as truth. Because God's Word is very clear that it is His will to heal everybody, and yet we don't accept that because we've seen it not happen. We don't stand on God's words. We stare at the giants and say, it must not have been His will, or God doesn't heal today. That's what we do. We've got to go back to get to the promises of God. You see, these things all happen to them as examples that we can go look back at the consequences of rejecting God's promises. They're written for our admonition. What about Romans 15? Verse 1, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves, let each one please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That means everything that you read in Scripture, not just the Old Testament, the New Testament, they were written for our learning. When he wrote this in Romans, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's also talking about the things that were written prior to this, the book of Luke being one of them. He saw that as Scriptures and calls it such. But why? That we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. You see, this is not a book of fairy tales. This is not a book of stories. This is a book of history in a, in, a, in a sense. That we go back and we look at how the people of God responded to the Word of God and see the consequences of the rejecting of that Word. As an example to us, it should tell us how that we should approach God and how we should look at the promise of God and how we should, we should respond to those promises. So when Jesus talks about the bread of heaven, we know that that was talking about him. We know that he says that this is my body that was broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That should mean something to us, right? Now, I read this last week, but I want to read it again. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 9, it says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's a very powerful statement. Because in Romans 7, that's what we call Paul's schizophrenic moment, where he's like, the things that I want to do, those are the things I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do do. You know, I mean, he's going off the, on, on, on this tangent here, is that his flesh and his spirit do not line up together. They're not getting along very well. Because his body wants to do one thing. I would imagine it would be something that doesn't involve getting beaten in prison all the time. 
But his spirit wants to do everything that God wants. And if that causes his body to get whipped and thrown in jail, well, so be it. And then you got the body over here is like, listen, can we just take a week off? I mean, seriously, like, can we just back off just a little bit? Like, can I heal up for a day? There's this battle going on. And here in verse 8, he says, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The you that I see, the you, the me that you see is not you. You talk about schizophrenia there. We're in the Spirit. If indeed, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. What are we talking about here? The Holy Spirit, right? That is the Spirit of God. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his, okay? So we know that if we do not, are not indwelled with the Holy Spirit, that we do not belong to Christ, right? That's what it says. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Will this body die? Yes. Right? If we keep eating corn dogs at fairs, it's going to be a lot quicker. We were at a fair last week, and everything that could be fried was fried, and we ate it all, and it was delicious. Thus saith the Lord. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But that doesn't matter because the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? There's only one righteousness. It's His righteousness, not yours. <coughs> you can't earn it. You can't get it. You can't go find it. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't do anything to get it. It's His righteousness that He pours out on you. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you notice that if, if He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit, who dwells in you. The body's going to die. Is your body alive right now? Yeah. So why does it say that the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, will give life to your immortal bodies if it already has life? He's not talking about raising your body from the dead. What's he talking about here? You see, we're going back to the promises. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in us, the Holy Spirit, He's giving life to our mortal bodies, the body that will ultimately die. But what does that mean? That means if this body is sick, the Holy Spirit is giving life to it that takes away that sickness. You guys see what I'm saying here? That's why we're bringing this in. That's why we're going slow with this. Is that this, We often read this very quickly. And we often overlap and we just say, yes, yeah, so the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dwell gives life to our mortal bodies. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. But what does that mean? It can only mean one thing. That sickness will take life from you. Therefore, if the Spirit of Christ is here to give you life, it gives life to you. How do we get the Spirit of Christ? How are we indwelled with the Holy Spirit? When Jesus stood up there in John chapter 7 and said, this is the living water that I give to you. Let him who comes to me thirst, I will give him living water. You'll never thirst again. The, the water that came from the rock is a picture of the, what, what how, do, how do we get it? I mean, that would be a fair question, right? How do I get it? And, and what strings are attached and what do I have to do? Well, in order to understand this, that how the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, we have to look at what? The new covenant, right? Because the old covenant, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, did not indwell anybody. The Holy Spirit would come upon certain people for a time and then He would lift. 
But in Ezekiel chapter 36, we know it's, it's Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 is talking about this new covenant. What is the promise? Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So he's, he's getting on to them. And he's saying, listen, I'm making it away not because of you, but because of my name. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will keep my judgments and you will do them. Now, this is the promise. What did he say? I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. I will cleanse you from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you a new spirit, one that is alive. I will take out the heart of stone, I will put in the heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. Who did all the work? God. He did all of it. Here he says that he will put his spirit within you. We know that because of that fact, that when we come to him in faith, and we, see, we know tons and tons of scripture, we're not going to go there today, but that talks about that. That we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. That that spirit in us is now giving life to our mortal bodies. So should we have a confident expectation to walk in health? Absolutely. Because that spirit is in us giving life to our mortal bodies. Giving life to us. We should expect nothing less. And yet we walk around defeated. So bringing this all home is as I said, when it says that we need to look at the bread, we need to look at the bread. When Jesus was talking about that in John 6, that I'm the bread from heaven that came down. You have to eat my flesh. Weird words. We needed to know what that was talking about with manna because that's what he's referencing. It's the same exact word used. And we need to know, what, well, okay, what, what does this manna have to do with anything? And then as we're doing that, we watch the living water. We watch all of this come into play. We know it was the blood of the lamb that redeemed us from sin. So what does this have to do with anything. How do we walk in this? Step one is we believe it. We accept His Word as absolute truth. We can question Scripture all day long, but we can't argue with what's clear. You'll never find an example in Scripture where it wasn't God's will to heal somebody. You'll never find it. It's not there. You'll also never find an example where God is specifically putting sickness on somebody to teach them a lesson. That's another myth that's out there. Yes, there was judgment that came upon a covenant people that was warned that this is what's going to happen. But that judgment does not apply to us under the new covenant because that's been paid for. So you won't find that. But to land where we started this whole search is we've got to look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Paul writing to the Corinthian church is getting on them. The entire letter is pretty much him getting on them, telling them to knock it off, to get things right, and to do things the way they were supposed to. Verse 18, first of all, 
when you come together as a church. Now, never forget that. The church comes together. When you come together as a church, the body of Christ coming together, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Who are the ones that are approved? People are elevated, right? There are positioning that are given by God. Uh, you got elders, pastors, bishops, all that kind of stuff. Those are approved and should be recognized. But what this is talking about primarily is people being elevated because they give more or they're a certain social status. That has nothing to do with anything. That's what he's getting here. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So they're coming together for the sole purpose to eat and to drink. That's no bueno. Don't do that. That's not why you come here. You're putting somebody ahead and somebody goes up there and they take a bunch and they're eating. This is their meal. That's not what you're supposed to do. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, there's a lot in here that I find very interesting. As you guys know, I get hung up on words. And there are words that jump out to me. First of all, he took it and he broke the bread. And he gave thanks for the bread. And this is part of the Passover meal. When we look at, at all the Gospels talked about this. He gave thanks and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. That's where we started. The bread was broken for them. His body was broken for them. We do this in remembrance of him. Now, that's interesting. Because when we take communion and we, we do it together, we always say, you know, take ease as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me and, and whatever. But what are we remembering? And why are we remembering it? Then he says, this is the cup after supper, as the cup in the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Well, what are we remembering? What are these two things tied together? The new covenant. The blood shed, the body broken, are tied together with promises for the new covenant. Right? So as often as we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until when? He returns. Every time we do it, we're doing it in remembrance of Him. That's very important. What are the results for the church of Corinth for not doing it this way? Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, as a result of this, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, this is interesting. 
because the result of not honoring the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, according to this, is what's made them weak, sick, and dead. Is there more to this communion thing that we've, than we've been looking at? The answer is ultimately yes. You see, I told you that I would break down exactly what this is talking about, that we, we take it in an unworthy manner. Oftentimes, people have looked at that and said, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to like, make sure I don't have any sin in my life or anything like that? The answer to that is no. So what does it mean to eat and to drink in an unworthy manner? We'll talk about that next week. Because we have to look at this in its entirety. Because according to this, that whenever we come together and do this, as a church, we're doing this in a way that we are doing this in remembrance of what Jesus did. The question is why? I mean, of course we don't forget. So does he simply mean remembering, or is there more to it than that? And as I've showed you throughout this entire thing that we've been doing thus far, we can go back to the Old Testament and watch the pictures of things that took place that will answer this question. Next week, we will take communion together. But we're going to do it different than we've ever done it before because we're going to do it in the way that God ordained it. I'm going to show you guys next week exactly what was going on here and what it means to eat and drink in an unworthy manner. And I assure you, you haven't done it. So if you're concerned at all, let that concern subside. Okay? But we've got to get a hold of this because what if, what if, by simply partaking of communion and the remembrance of the body and the blood of Jesus is the only thing we've been missing to walk in the promises of God as far as healing is concerned. What if it's that simple? Can't be, right? Come back next week.